Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jennifer, I don't know if you noticed the theme music that I opened with today. It's a little different than what we usually go with. I certainly did. And I also noticed that you had some very particular dance moves that went along with it. Well, that's what I do on a regular basis before you arrive in the studio. So that has nothing to do with it. Um, But the music is uh, to coincide with the working title that I've been using for this episode, which is The Data Boys. Now, I hear a Z at the end of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a a boy band and uh, and it's B-O-1. YZ, um, which of course I say in jest uh, because there are data folk of all stripes. Um, but what got me thinking about the topic of today's episode is the rise of a new kind of boy band uh, in educational research, and it is the quantitatively oriented policy wonk. And how will it affect my test scores if I listen to a lot of their music? Well, you know, you're joking, but one of the things that you are putting your finger on there is the fact that there is a kind of raging popularity here uh, behind the quantitative movement in education. There is something catchy to it. Um, You know, it appeals to us for a particular reason, but there also is a kind of narrowness to it that leads to a sense that maybe you've heard this before. Well, Jack, as our regular listeners know, this is typically the part of the show where I would escort you to the time machine and send you hurtling back through the decades, but that's not really necessary this time. You know, this is actually a fairly new phenomenon. If you go back in educational history, you don't see a heavy emphasis on quantitative methodologies. And so this is something worth thinking about. Why are we seeing in the past 10 to 20 years this real emphasis on the quantitative in educational research? And what is the impact of this kind of approach? Because, you know, Every different approach comes with strengths and weaknesses. It's going to enable you to see some things, but not others. Um, So, you know, it seems to me like the rise of the quantitative movement in education is going to allow us to do particular things that we weren't able to do before. It's going to be a response to something, um, but it also is going to engender uh, a response in turn uh, that will be generated by the shortcomings of this particular movement. And so I was uh, trying to find somebody who would be able to talk both about the affordances of quantitative studies in education, as well as the limits of those studies. Um, and, and after much searching around, as you, I'm sure, recall, uh, we began casting about for a guest for today's show. And it, it was, I think, the hardest uh project we've had in terms of trying to find somebody to talk about an issue. People were measurably reluctant to take on this topic. And we, you know, we started kicking this episode idea around maybe nine months ago. And and the first thing that got us interested in, you know, was what was it going to mean for the sort of measurability part of education research that the people now running the show seem themselves so disinterested in data. It also almost seemed like there was an omerta, uh, you know, a, a mafia code about not speaking ill uh, of other 
quantitative methodologists. You know, we would have these offline conversations with folks who would express some of their skepticism uh, about the methodologies uh, that are currently in vogue. Um, but then they wouldn't really want to talk on record about it. So it almost seems like we're uh, we're going deep undercover here. Like we should both be wearing fake mustaches. Well, fortunately for us, our exhaustive search did finally pay off. And next up, we have joining us Jesse Rothstein. He's a professor of public policy and economics at UC Berkeley, where he studies the economics of education. We'll be right back to talk all things data with Jesse Rothstein. Welcome back. We are so pleased to have Jesse Rothstein joining us. Jesse, we kicked off this episode talking about the rise of the quantitative movement in education research. And one of the impacts of that is that it seems like you almost have two sides. There's the scientific side and then there's the anti-scientific side that really isn't allowed to question the scientists. Now, I know that education is not the only field where you see this kind of divide. Uh, In economics, we call this physics envy. That the that people who have really mastered the very advanced mathematical techniques get 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 sometimes undue deference mm-hmm. because the rest of us feel like we ought to have mastered them but haven't. But then it it trickles down, and so as the economists have come into the education field and brought in lots of lots of advanced quantitative methods and advanced statistics, there's a sense that quantitative results are inherently scientific and more scientific than than less quantitative analysis and that you really can't question the results of a, of that kind of a quantitative analysis unless you unless you're you have other quantitative results to go against it um and so it's really limited the scope of people who are validated to to participate in these conversations it seems to me that we see a kind of clubbishness with these methodologists that we haven't necessarily seen previously in educational research, um, or at least not to this degree, that there's a kind of insidership and outsidership that is strikingly intense. And I'm wondering why. You know, Is it because they speak a language that others don't speak and can't gain access to? Uh, is it that they inhabit the same social networks and are closer to each other and insulated from others? What's going on here? The quantitative movement has gotten so big within education that it's not a completely unified club at this point. Most of the people in it don't know each other. But it definitely, there definitely is some kind of insider-outsider attitude, attitude about it, that we're, we have access to this truth that, that the people who, who haven't learned statistics don't have access to. And we don't have to take what they're, what they're taking seriously because what they're saying seriously because they don't, um, they, don't, uh, they don't understand that truth that we're bringing. Mm-hmm. You definitely see that. The other place you see some clubbishness is that, there, is that there's been a kind of human capital pipeline into this into this world within education where some foundations that were that were part of the school reform movement have really quite consciously cultivated a a club of young people who have gone through particular training programs and and are going out into the education system and they definitely perceive themselves as as kind of a vanguard of a movement there's a deep tension right now in the world of educational research between qualitative methodologists and quantitative methodologists. And 
it seems to me that it's really driven by a tension between what is measurable and what is complete. And by that I mean when we're looking at inputs and outcomes in education, uh, the quantitative methodologists want something that is measurable. They don't want somebody's take on it. They don't want somebody's eyeballs on the ground. They want data. But then the qualitative methodologists don't want to accept something that is going to be narrow and partial. Uh, they want something that is going to be complete. And this seems pretty unresolvable in a field that is so complex. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand that a bit. I think that you're right that there are tensions between the quantitative and the qualitative camps on both the outcomes and the, the inputs. Um, so on the outcomes, you can only study impacts of, of programs on outcomes that you actually measure. And ideally, that you measure quantitatively. Um, and so there's there was a as you we talked about earlier there was a big push to to create um, to create standardized achievement measures so we could use them as outcomes. And so a lot of the 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 movement and a lot of the fighting has been around creating annualized annual standardized tests that could be used to measure to measure outcomes of various things. That that puts under the rug a whole lot of other outcomes that we care about in education that aren't measured by standardized tests in math and reading. Um, and there's a tendency to say, well, look, we've measured impacts on this, these, these test scores. We're going to ignore potential impacts on all sorts of other things that may matter, but we don't have measures of. And so we're going to, we're going to evaluate policies based on what they do for test scores even though they might the evaluation based on their impacts on citizenship or or other things may may lead to a very different answer. It seems like the fight is also over another issue, which is context, right? That there's a kind of false choice between the extremes here. That on the one side is the argument, well, you can't measure everything, and if you're not going to measure everything completely, then it's not worth doing at all. And uh, on the other extreme, it's that, well, context doesn't matter that much. Uh, we've got some measures here. Let's actually you know, analyze the data. On the input side, the the tension is also there, as you say, between between how seriously you take the context, um, where I think the the qualitative side has probably erred too far on the side of saying context matters, and then not being willing to take another step to say, and this is what we can do to improve the context, or and this is what we can do to help students who are in a particular context. Uh, it, it can't the answer context matters can't be the end of the conversation. That's just the beginning. But then the quantitatives people have also ignored the context matters and have, have often tried to, to implement one-size-fits-all type policies or to say that if students aren't achieving to a particular level then the school is failing without taking account of the fact that the context makes it next to impossible for the school to, to get the students to be achieving at that level. Um, and so, so the two sides end up talking past each other. I think somehow we have to get to a place where the two the two views are integrated, that we, that we take context seriously, but we also take seriously the need to, to move beyond the simple statement that context matters. 
Jesse, there's a phenomenon in quantitative research that I think of fondly as a sort of forest for the treeism. A classic example would be a study that looks at, say, you know, do students fare better when their teachers don't have pensions? In other words, you can end up with a measurable answer, but there's some larger question out there that gets lost under the standard deviations. So I think the, the most glaring example in my mind is not even a regression, just simple, simple descriptive statistics that are often, you know, a big part of the push um, in No Child Left Behind was to come up with measures of which schools were succeeding and which schools were failing. And most measures that you make based on test scores, you're going to find that the schools that are achieving high test scores are almost always the, the relatively advantaged schools with parents who have high incomes and high education who can be involved in their kids' classrooms. And the schools that have the lowest test scores are going to be high-poverty schools who are serving students who often come from disrupted uh, home environments, who don't have a lot of supports at home, and and who are scoring low on the tests. It's not particularly helpful to say that the first set of schools are, are succeeding and the second set of schools are failing. It may be the case that some of those very wealthy schools are doing a really terrible job, but it doesn't matter how terrible a job they're doing because their students are going to be successful anyway. Similarly, some of the some of the low income schools may be doing a really good job with a really hard context, and but you won't see that in just average test scores. And so, these rankings that are just based on average scores are completely unhelpful. Then the people sometimes they're the where it really gets absurd is there have been some groups that have taken the next step and said, well, look. This demography isn't destiny because we can point to some high poverty schools that are nevertheless achieving high test scores. And so what we need to do is figure out what those schools are doing and do and do more like that. And some of those early lists, you dug into those lists, and what you found was that one of those schools was in Cambridge, and one of those schools was in Ann Arbor, and another school was was just outside Berkeley. And uh several of them, all those three that I mentioned and, and others also on the list were schools that served the, the children of graduate students who lived in dorms or, or housing developments out near major research universities. Mm-hmm. Graduate students tend to be very poor. Many of their students are English as a second language learners. They are not socioeconomically disadvantaged in the same way that students at other high poverty schools are. And the fact that the students are achieving high test scores is not necessarily indicating that those schools are really doing, have really solved the problem about how to educate children in poverty. It's that the, the quantitative measures of, of school disadvantage are really inadequate to capturing what's going on in those schools. You know, this is drawing to mind an example for me uh, of a highly contentious quantitative approach. Uh, and that's value-added measures of teacher effectiveness. So value-added yeah. came out of this observation that you've made that you can't just look at proficiency rates. And so the approach was, well, let's let's look not at how students are scoring today, or at least not alone at that. Uh, let's look at how much they're growing and the students who are growing the most must have the best teachers. But even though that approach seemed to respond to uh, the flaw that you were just identifying and looking only at student proficiency rates, it really ended up producing one of the biggest backlashes we've seen against 
quantitative methods in education policy. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand why that was. It was a case where the the methods got more and more complex and really dramatically outstripped the the ability of most participants in the education process to understand them. And where the where the quants really asserted their their authority as people who had access to a truth that other people didn't have access to. And then started to make really aggressive um recommendations or or prescriptions based on these results. And so you had some people saying that 80% of teachers ought to be ought to be fired after the first two years and we ought to keep only the top performing 20%. Which is really an absurd way to run any sort of <laughs> workforce and you could never actually implement this. But that was what the quantitative models were saying and so people didn't look beyond that. Um, and But when you start to make absurd prescriptions and start to really change the, the way teaching is done, then you're going to get a big backlash. The last question we have for you is uh, when you gaze into your crystal ball and you see 10 or 20 years into the future, uh, what is the status of the quantitative movement in education research and uh, what is the the relative influence of uh, quantitative researchers versus, let's say, qualitative researchers in education policy? I would say that, that there's a long-running long pathology in education policy discussions, which is that, we, all, that we, we are always looking for the silver bullet that's going to solve all the problems in education, a simple, cheap intervention that we could, that we could make that's going to fundamentally change the education system. And we tend to, if, if we set up the problem as we need to find that silver bullet, then that rules out out of hand lots of useful reforms that are not silver bullets that will make incremental improvements but aren't going to fundamentally change the nature of the problem. Um, and so it leads us to, to look for, for revolutionary changes. And that leads us to, to kind of focus on things that somebody can claim are revolutionary changes, but typically don't have any evidence that they work or don't have anywhere near adequate evidence that they work at the level that they're being that they're being billed at. And we focus on those things for a while and we kind of think, hey, this is going to change the world. And then eventually, as we work on it for a while, evidence accumulates that it hasn't changed the world and we become totally disillusioned with it and we move on to the next thing. And so you could see that with school choice, you could see that with charter schools, you can see that with with teachers and value added. Um, there have been on the other side, class sizes sometimes taken that form. Um, the but none of those are going to fundamentally transform the education system and allow us to eliminate achievement gaps and raise all students to proficiency at the same cost that we're spending now. And so while for a period people can promise that, eventually we have to confront reality and it's not true. That dynamic, I think, leads to, to a focus on quantitative work that may be out of proportion. That it's really hard for, for qualitative understandings of context and other things to be able to, to make the kinds of promises that are being made, that, that are often made about, about more market-oriented interventions. And so as, as if we're going to jump from one potential bullet, silver bullet to the next, it's typically going to be 
that's going to lead to a framing of the conversation as a quantitative conversation. That was Jesse Rothstein. He's an education economist at UC Berkeley and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, among other things. And if his name sounds familiar, that's because his father, Richard, was a guest on this podcast last year. We had him on to talk about housing segregation and the roots of the racial wealth gap. Okay, now back to this episode. Jack, Listening to Jesse talk, I kept thinking about New Orleans, which has really emerged as a model of a kind of data-driven vision for education. Jesse mentioned a human capital pipeline that's reshaping education research, and New Orleans is really a model for that, too. There's a team of researchers, for example, that's constantly measuring the impact of the education experiment that's taken place. And what I think is so interesting is that more than a decade after Hurricane Katrina, that whole question of how you measure success is still being hotly debated in New Orleans. There was some uh, pretty amazing footage recently of two Louisiana legislators having it out over just this question. When we uh, post the episode, I'll put a link to this on the blog. And what you saw was that a representative from New Orleans was talking about the significant number of young people ages 16 to 24 in that city who aren't in school and they're not working either. He was arguing basically that if you measure that output, then it's hard to see how the New Orleans experiment is a success. You know, there there's a lot of really good quantitative work and a lot of the the strongest and most interesting debates are between folks uh, who are engaged in this approach to measurement um, and who you know are critiquing each other in terms of what is being measured, how it's being measured. Um, it, it seems pretty obvious to say measurement matters and it's not going away. Um, at the same time, you know, to go back to your comment about the human capital pipeline, it does seem like there are some sides being drawn here, uh, and that one way to think about it is, you know, if measurement is going to be incomplete, um, who is more likely to be okay with that? Um, who is more likely to be okay with a, a narrowed vision um, or a narrower set of outcome uh, measures? And then who is going to be inclined to reject that on its premise? Um, this is not a kind of litmus test. Um, there are absolutely quantitative methodologists who believe in a kind of broad and comprehensive vision of education. Um, but it is something worth tracking in terms of, uh, you know, where uh, philanthropic dollars flow, uh, which uh, policy studies end up being adopted uh, by political leaders. Um, and there, there will be a kind of reckoning at some point, uh, and it will happen, you know, I would guess, uh, in the next 10 years in terms of um, what we think constitutes uh, a set of valid and reliable measures uh, in terms of both inputs and outcomes in education. Well, one of the things that's so fascinating is that there's this sort of parallel debate happening within economics about who gets to be an economist and who's an, a leading voice within economics. And you know, it turns out that basically it's all guys. And so they, you know, they do some uh, some surveys and they discover that that not only is there this huge gender imbalance, but that the men who dominate economics tend to embrace more conservative views and tend to start from the point of view that that uh, uh, that government intervention is bad and that market solutions are inherently 
preferable. Yeah, our, our joking title of Data Boys uh, certainly alludes to that. That you know, as we're thinking about you know these questions of who is going to be drawn to this kind of approach, um, who is going to find uh, its limitations unacceptable. Uh, we are seeing, you know, some overlap with these issues of identity, whether they be, you know, class, race, gender based, uh, or in terms of uh, ideology. Uh, and again, something that is just interesting to pay attention to, if not totally clear at this point. Full disclosure: this episode was not peer reviewed, nor were any regressions run in its production. But we have pre-registered the hypothesis that. This episode will be loathed by a certain subset of educational researchers. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And just a reminder, if you like the high-quality content we've been serving up for you, please uh, make your measurable preference clear by going to iTunes and leaving us a review. I think it's a one to five Likert scale with five being the highest. Right now, I think we're averaging five. Five is both the mean and the mode. And also, if you have any sort of qualitative input, you can tweet us at Have You Heard Pot. And Jack, as a special treat, can we hear just a little bit more of your favorite boy band? Yeah, and for those who have us uh, streaming on the YouTube channel, uh, we can both dance our way out to this one. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye.